Thank you for listening to the Better Than Yesterday podcast hosted by Star Strength and Conditioning. We believe that by creating positive habits in sleep, mindset, nutrition, relationships, movement, mobility, and training, you have the ability to become better than yesterday. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another Better Than Yesterday podcast hosted by Stark Strength and Conditioning. I'm your host, Paul, and uh, I'm sitting here today with Trevor. He is the owner and founder of the Canadian Kettlebell Company. Uh, we, we just met on, inter- on the internet, so this is kind of like a first date for us. And uh, we've been chatting a little bit. He, he let me grab his bells and swing them around, and uh, it's pretty cool. So I thought it was interesting that uh, there is somebody in the city here who is making some some local kettlebells, and we were just talking about what goes into it and a bit of his history and background, and it's a pretty cool story. So welcome to the show, Trevor. Thanks, Paul. Thanks for having me. Really excited to be here. Awesome. Good to hear. So let's uh, let's get into maybe a little bit of your history. So like athletic background, growing up, tell us, tell us about yourself. Okay. So I grew up in Ottawa, Ontario. I recently moved to Winnipeg about three years ago uh, as a military officer here on uh, 17 Wing, the Air Force Base. Growing up, I was super, super into anything that involved moving around. So track and field, volleyball, basketball, football, you name it, I played it. Uh, In my later teen years, I started to really focus on volleyball as a sport. And I started to get a lot of training as part of that. So we had strength coaches come in before every practice. We were on strength training programs, doing a lot of functional fitness. It included a lot of kettlebell work, a lot of stuff with bands. So that's kind of when I got my first taste of uh, kettlebell exercising. Uh, Fast forward a couple more years and went to to university, played volleyball there. We had uh, very strong uh, strength training programs that we did and a lot of it involved kettlebells. Um, Leading up to today, uh, COVID pandemic hits, you know, my usual dream routine uh, halts just like most of all of you. Yep. So I start looking for, you know, new solutions to that. And I started doing uh, Daily Fit Pack by uh, Steve Ramos, another Winnipeg local. And his whole thing is all you need to work at at home is a kettlebell and an exercise band. So myself already having some experience with kettlebells, I thought, you know, what the hell, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give it a go. So I started looking around for kettlebells and I realized that there just wasn't much out there at the moment, and there wasn't a Canadian-made product. So back in university, I I made friends with a guy named Graham McBain, and his father owns Ancast uh, Industries here in Winnipeg. They're a metal casting foundry. And I thought, you know, Graham, maybe we can make some kettlebells. What do you think? And he walked me through the process. Uh, My background's in uh, chemical and material engineering, so I already had an idea of product development, uh, metallurgy, what goes into creating something from nothing. So we worked together. Um, he, he taught me a bit about how a foundry works. I taught him a lot about kettlebells and about um, the design process from my perspective. And then now we're here and we have the uh, Canadian kettlebell. That's awesome. I, I was able to uh, make use of the, the kettlebell that Trevor brought over. And it's, uh, it's a really nice kettlebell. Like they, Thank you. You put a lot of work into it, obviously. And the design, like usually you'll just see a kettlebell with like, you know, just the number 45 pounds on it or whatever, but your, your design is really nice on there. I know you were telling, uh, telling us about, you know, what goes into the intricacies of that design and stuff like that, but let's, um, maybe can you take it from the top? Like what happens, what goes into, to creating a kettlebell from nothing? For sure. I could be super detailed on this. I uh, probably drive some of my friends and family crazy going over it, but I'll start you right from the top. So First thing was 
coming up with the design. So I had some experience with kettlebells, but I definitely wasn't an expert. So talking with some experts in the field, asking them, what do they look for in a good kettlebell? What is missing? What can we do better? Uh, and then taking my measuring tape all around and researching kettlebells, different brands, almost every brand out there I have measurements on. And I just tried to take the best parts of every single one and take that into my design. So with my background, I have some experience with uh, computer-aided design, but I, I found out that you know it was a bit too much work to take on all on my own, as well as I don't have uh, necessarily the best software to do that. So I ended up partnering with, uh, you know, not partnering, but contracting out some services to have the kettlebells design, working with the designer to make sure that everything is to my liking. So all the measurements are good, the shape is right, and for me, the most important thing was the handle. That's what a lot of people talk about when they talk about a good kettlebell, is a good handle. So once we have the three designs uh, ready to go, we made our first pattern. So the pattern is what gets used to create the mold. So each one of our kettlebells is molded in a single cast sand mold. So what happens is, is you create the pattern. It's basically the shape of the kettlebell. And then you can press sand around it. And that leaves a cavity that you then pour the molten metal into. So next comes deciding what you're going to make it out of. There's tons of different varieties of metal out there, different weights, different strengths, all this type of stuff. So we decided to go with uh, gray iron. It's uh, very easy to machine. It's very easy to cast. It's, it holds a paint very well. And, and then we moved into actually prototyping them and making them. So that would involve melting down the metal. The foundry gets all their metals from recycled, um, recycled metal places around Winnipeg and Canada. So a lot of stuff coming from the mint. So they'll have um, steel scraps that they'll punch out coins out of and, and the such, and then we'll take those and melt that down. Add in a couple different things to get the metal right, so we're adding like you know some carbon maybe, some silica, stuff like that, and then boom, out comes your kettlebell. It's still really rough. It has all the gating attached, which is the part of the mold where the metal flows through into the, into the kettlebell. So that all has to be ground off and broke off, and a lot of labor goes into that, but then once that's done, it goes to quality control. They make sure that it's all smooth, there's no defects, uh, the weight's accurate to within 3%, and then it gets sent off to the coders. So the coating on our kettlebell is a highly durable, matte black, textured powder coat. So powder coating is a process that involves heating the bells up to about 400 degrees Fahrenheit, and that ensures that the coating adheres properly so that it's not going to chip off like some of the uh, kettlebells of lesser quality. Hmm. So how long did it take from you deciding that you want to make kettlebells to getting your first prototype in your hands? So the idea kind of struck me around Christmas break time, so 15th, 20th of December. And I had the first kettlebell in my hands, I believe it was like the first week of February, uh, correction, January. The first week of January? Yeah. Wow, that's, that's pretty damn fast. Yeah, so by having the connection with the foundry, I was able to work closely with them and kind of speed things along. That's awesome. Um, so I guess how long, I guess how many hours did it take? Because I'm thinking like you had to get molds made and everything like this for, for the kettlebells. And you were telling me how, um, you were telling me a little bit about the molds and how they can be reused for how many is it? So how many thousands? Each mold is only used for one kettlebell. Yeah. But the pattern, which is what they use to make the mold. So they compress the sand around a shape of a kettlebell. Right. That can be used about 2,000 times. Um, there are ones that you can make out of aluminum, 
which actually lasts for much many more castings. But with the prototypes, we decided to just go with a standard red board, which is very common in the casting industry for low quantity productions or prototyping. Okay. And you have you have some pretty cool designs. I'll I'll end up uploading some pictures of them. But uh, what what went into the design? Because uh, a lot of them you said are a lot of them are made in China, right? Like overseas. So for you to order a kettlebell right now, for anyone to order one, um, whether it's through a local business or you know somewhere in the states or whatever, usually they're putting in their orders and waiting on that stuff to come overseas, right? So what? What do you do differently um, on the, the design side than you might see on some of those overseas kettlebells? Okay, great question. So a lot of kettlebells that are purchased from China are purchased by a reseller. So someone would come along and say, hey, factory in China or elsewhere, I want to purchase your kettlebell. And they say, great, we've made already you know, tons of kettlebells. We already have the pattern created for this to then make your molds out of. And I'll send you some pictures so you can uh, show your, uh, your followers exactly what the pattern is. I know it might be a little bit confusing to understand at first. So when they send um, their logo, logo over to this company in China, what they'll do is they'll actually just interchange the logo on the kettlebell pattern that they already have. So you're getting whatever dimensions, whatever shape of handle they have. Yeah, you can shop around. Maybe you could design your own if you were going to order a lot. But some of these companies, you know, their minimum order size is 10,000 pounds of kettlebells, and that's with you know your logo just slapped on there. So you're not really getting the opportunity to tweak them. You're not getting the opportunity maybe to test them and to refine them. Um, so with our kettlebells, you know, it, it's a constant iterative process. So every time we make a new casting, every time we cast a new size, we're gonna double check and say, hey, does this work? Is the handle the right thickness? Is the window the right width? Is there enough distance between the bell and the handle? Because all these things play a huge role in, in kettlebell exercises. Definitely. No, it's, um, I know some that I've used in the past, there's, there's certain kettlebells that you want to use, like competition bells are good for single-handed use, but I'm not a huge fan of doing them with, with the swings. But when you have a kettlebell that comes out with the horns and typically the, the cast kettlebells um, have a little bit more width on the handle there to fit both hands. And um, I know with yours, you had talked about uh, possibly doing a couple different options for the handle. So uh Coach Craig and I were here today, and we were trying out the the thirty five pound bell that you had brought, and had noticed like the the handle seems to be a little bit bigger. And we were talking about uh, you had mentioned that you might be able to do like a smaller handle for for women because a lot of times in workouts, especially CrossFit workouts, women end up using a thirty five pound kettlebell. Um, so that's really cool that you're intuitive to that sort of thing, and it's not just like you know one size fits all, and uh, that you have the ability to make some of those changes and tweaks and adjustments. And it's always good, you know, to be able to to go and talk to other people and not just have your own uh, your own idea in mind. And I, I think that's going to be extremely beneficial for you guys. Yeah, definitely. And um, thank you to everyone so far in Winnipeg and around Canada who's given me feedback. And even one guy in Germany who I've talked extensively with uh, about kettlebells, and he's given me some tips and his experience. Uh, things like, you know, the distance between the bell and the handle. It's something that's kind of talked about a lot. So if you make that, that window too large, then you're giving yourself a lot more torque on the bell. So it's making the exercise a lot easier. And it's maybe sitting too low down on your forearm. But if you make it too small, then it's hitting your wrist and it's very uncomfortable as we've all probably experienced with some low-grade kettlebells in the past. Yeah, we have, uh, I don't know where one of our kettlebells came from, but it's like uh, 
a vinyl dipped bell. Not a huge fan of it, but when I was holding that one, the, the window between the handle and the actual bell isn't very wide. So now it's pressing into to the bone on your wrist rather than resting on your, your forearm. And then um, some of the others, like the, the comp bells are always the same size, so the handle doesn't change. And then with the cast ones, typically as they get bigger, the handle gets a little bit thicker and uh, a little bit more space between the handle and the bell itself. Yeah, exactly. <clears throat> and uh, just to touch on the point about the handle thickness. So our handle right now is a 38 millimeter handle. So that's kind of the standard across many of the major kettlebell brands mm -hmm. for any of their kettlebell 16 kilograms, 35 pounds or heavier. Um, but we definitely want to create some kettlebells with some varying handle thicknesses because we do understand that there are women or people with smaller hands who, you know, they can't grip that big handle and they don't feel yeah. comfortable throwing it overhead and swinging it around in their living room, which is kind of where a lot yeah. of people are going to be using these, right? You don't want it to slam into your flat screen. <laughs> yeah. No, for sure. Well, that's what insurance is for, right? <laughs> so, um, no, it's, it's, I know like the barbells that we use, there's a women's size and, and a men's. I don't remember what the exact uh, diameter of the handles are, but yeah, when, when typically women go and they grab a barbell, uh, say if it's a men's barbell, for example, they'll, they'll definitely notice the, the thickness there. Um, and yeah, it makes it a little bit tougher to hold on to for longer periods of time, especially if your hands start sweating. Yeah, definitely. We, we wanted to focus on the texture of the handle a lot. So looking at the best type of painting, the best coating, because as we all know, when you get sweaty, your hands get slippery, but at the same time, you don't want something that's like sandpaper because then you're yeah. going to be ripping up your hands every time you swing the bell around. So that was really important was to get a nice textured feel on there so that it's not going to slip out of your hands in a swing. You're going to be able to put some chalk on there when it's those really sweaty days. I know you put some on in the gym earlier and it, it felt awesome. It was the first time I'd actually tried it with chalk. So oh, yeah. thank you. Yeah. yeah no, that's uh, definitely the, the, the more chalk you use, the better the workout. That's <laughs> usually how it goes. Um, no, it, it was great for, uh, for snatches. He had a, it was a 35 pound kettlebell that we were using. So it was kind of nice to just throw around. Uh, I said, I kind of wanted to try it out for maybe like a 20, 20 to 30 minute workout, just like a, a circuit where you don't put the bell down for, for 20 to 30 minutes and just see kind of how it feels and stuff like that. But, um, you had mentioned you had tried how many different places out looking for the right texture? Oh, yeah. So we, we got uh, five of our bells uh, powder-coated um, at different coating places across the city. We actually still have one place that we're going to check out that we just heard about. We also had uh, one coated by Rhino Linings. Oh, yeah. So we thought maybe we'd try something a little new. You know, what's more indestructible than a truck bed liner? Yeah. Maybe not something that they thought of over in China or something that they've tried out. So we're still waiting to get that one back. I think it's going to be kind of like a plasticky feel. Yeah. It might be a bit too textured, but yeah. I said, you know, what the heck? Let's give it a go. Let's try something new. Maybe we can innovate here. Maybe we can make a better kettlebell. Yeah. No, oh, that's cool. That's a good attitude to have going into it. Um, what, tell us about, uh, you had mentioned what it took to, to powder coat it and the, the temperature and all that kind of stuff. Can you give us a little bit more on, on getting that right type of coating? Because sometimes you can buy kettlebells, they might be a little bit cheaper and they're just painted, right? So. Yeah, for sure. So with a regular paint finish, 
it's basically just, you know, you're dipping the chem uh, sorry, the kettlebell in paint and pulling it out and then the paint's drying. So the adhesion between the, the iron and the paint isn't very strong. So that's where you find in a lot of these cheaper kettlebells that you're going to smash them together once and the paint's going to just shatter off. And no one wants, you know, paint all over their home gym or their, their gym and, you know, the ugliness of the oxidized metal. So what we're doing is we're using a powder coat and a powder coat is applied in an oven and the kettlebells are heated up to 400 degrees Fahrenheit first. So for a kettlebell, it's a lot of metal to heat up. So it takes quite a bit of time, but it's worth it because when the powder cures on the bell, it creates a very durable finish that will resist rust, that will be resistant to chipping, and that will give that bell a nice feel in your hands like I was talking about with kind of the textured feel. Um, one thing, another thing to note is that, um, you know, there's different grades of powder coats. So, uh, the big hype right now in the kettlebell community is e-coating. So e-coating is a different, uh, process for coating kettlebells, electronic coating. And it, it works by, um, electronically charging the paint and the kettlebell, uh, different charges, and then the paint will be attracted to the kettlebell. It's probably more complicated than that, but that's the gist of it, um, and there's been some videos that I've seen online where people have showed, you know, a comparison between a powder coat and an e-coat. And the e-coat's always, you know, more durable. But what I would say is, let's try that against my powder coat because not all powder coats are created equally. You mm -hmm. know, if the if the bell wasn't properly cleaned before it was powder coated. So our bells are go through a three-step cleaning process to remove any impurities from the foundry. Because when it comes to the foundry, it's still covered in you know, black sand from the molds, there's grime on it, there's oils from people's hands. Mm -hmm. so all that stuff is going to um, result in a subpar adhesion. Right. So we clean them properly. We make sure they're heated to 400 degrees Fahrenheit before we apply the powder. And that ensures a great cure. And that's something that maybe you're not getting out of China. And that's maybe why there's kind of a bad rap for powder coats. You know, powder coating is what goes on most people's cars. It's what goes on most industrial equipment. It goes on almost every squat rack and you probably see in Canada. And that stuff's pretty durable. So, yeah, you know. I guess it's different. The, like you said, you guys preheat it before, uh, before painting it. So I know some powder coating that we've had done on equipment, it'll typically be cleaned, powder coated, and then put into an oven and baked. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I'm sure there's different ways of doing it, but the, that adhesion is definitely what you want. If you're going to be using kettlebells, you know, you're using double bells where they do come in contact with each other and, you know, you bang them around a little bit and you, you definitely want it to last. Definitely, yeah. So with... Um, we had talked about like a, a turnaround. Um, if you wanted to, to get some bells made up, typically now if you were to order them, it takes months to get kettlebells. I know we ordered some in uh, October and we got a mid-January, which was quite a while. And I think some of that has to do with um, orders being placed, them coming from overseas and just... I know there's a lag in a lot of fitness equipment right now, especially because gyms aren't open and a lot of people are, are ordering stuff online. So for you to, you know, place an order for kettlebells, what's that, what's that turnaround like? So right now we just have our 35 pound kettlebell about to go into production. So we're looking at about two weeks for the finished product to be in Winnipeg. So for all those people who have ordered from all over Canada, um, you know, depending on shipping time, it's going gonna, it's gonna to depend. Mm -hmm. our, our, the rest of our three sizes that we're going with originally, so we're producing the 16 kilogram right now. We're also going to be producing a 12 kilo, which is 26 pounds, a 20 kilo, which is 44 pounds, and a 24 kilo, which is 53 pounds. 
those patterns for those kettlebells are coming in in the next week or so. And then it's going to be about a two to three week turnaround to get the initial batch done. But once we have everything sorted out, it's going to be almost, you know, just one to two weeks uh, between initial order and producing these kettlebells. But our plan is to have inventory in stock at all times. So it never comes to the point where you need to put in a specialized order. And that's one of the huge advantages with us is that, you know, you're not buying a kettlebell from a company that's then buying it from China and shipping it from China and all this stuff. So there's so many, you know, uh, chinks in the in the chain, so to speak, that could that could break. So the foundry could miss production deadline, mm-hmm. or the shipping company that you've that they've paid for in China could miss the deadline, or it could you know get held up at customs. When it gets here, then it has to come in a port of entry, and then it has to travel across Canada to whoever's then buying it, and then it has to go from their warehouse to your house. Mm-hmm. Whereas our kettlebells, they're coming directly from the foundry, painted into our warehouse facility, and then they're fulfilled. You know right from there. So you're also saving a lot of money on shipping if you're looking to buy a kettlebell in Canada because right now a lot of the kettlebells that are available are ones that are made in the States. So you're playing your import duties on those, probably higher shipping costs. Mm-hmm. You're also not supporting a Canadian business, which we are. You know, we're 100% Canadian owned. We use 100% Canadian metal. Our, we, we support four local businesses in, in the production of these things. So, Yeah, I thought that was really cool when you had mentioned that previously. Just, uh, Just all the the different steps that it goes through in in Winnipeg here and the the local businesses that are a part of it so that's that's something that's really cool so it is helping to create work and jobs for for other people that are already here in in our city yeah oh definitely um the you know the 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 effect that it has on a city like Winnipeg having this type of business, I think, is huge, right? You're you're employing manufacturing, so the foundry and the powder coaters, but you're also working with logistic companies, right, to move them, warehousing, marketing, advertising, you know, getting the logos designed. That was all done locally. So, you know, whereas something that you're maybe outsourcing to China, all of that money is going out of the country, and it's not going towards paying for good Canadian jobs and supporting local businesses that right now are are struggling. You know, like the the foundry that we're working with. You know, they're not producing at their highest capacity at the moment because the entire world of you know industri- the entire industrialized world right now is kind of a bit paused. You know, it's it's not working at 100% capacity. So if we can add add to their load, if we can add to their business, and that's huge for us. It's 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 about making it work for everyone it's about making it work for the local community and getting kettlebells into locals hands as soon as possible cool that's a it's it's a good goal it's uh especially for people that are having you know trouble getting equipment into their hands right now and and i know there's some people that are on a, a good waiting list for for equipment so i think you know having a kettlebell um, and I had mentioned this to you previously, but uh, having just even one kettlebell at home, a 50-pound kettlebell for me, uh, there's a ton of stuff that you could do with it, whether it is strength-based, you could do conditioning-based if you're doing circuits and stuff like that. And, you know, you add that and some bodyweight exercises, and, uh, yeah, it's pretty limitless what you can do with it, especially if you know how to, how to use one properly. Oh, yeah, 100% agree. I think the kettlebell is the most versatile some of my favorite workouts were, you know, a couple kettlebells in the park. Yeah. That's a great way to yeah. do it in the summertime. You know, you can just bring one or two kettlebells out and boom, you have, you can do legs, you can do back, you can do chest. Like I, you can do floor presses, you can do, you know, tons of different stuff. Like honestly, it is a total strength training tool. Get that, a yoga mat, a foam roller and a band. And I honestly think that you're ready to embark on any fitness journey. Yeah. Even, yeah, park it at the bottom of a hill and there's, there's a lot more fun you can have too. <laughs> So you went from 
you weren't an entrepreneur before starting this this venture, right? So let's let's talk about kind of what you were doing previous to uh, to going into this kettlebell production. For sure, yeah. So I think I mentioned earlier that I'm originally from Ottawa. So I moved here in 2019, summer of 2019. Got posted here to 17 Wing, which is the Air Force Base here. Got, and now I'm working at 435 Transport and Rescue Squadron. So we do tactical air transport, we do search and rescue, and we also do missions in support of NORAD, so air-to-air refueling. I'd always been super, super interested in entrepreneurship, um, product design, always looking around the world and thinking, you know, what, what could be done better? How could we do these things better? How could we make it more efficient? And then this year, I kind of told myself, you know, stop waiting for, for the perfect idea, for the perfect thing to drop into your lap. Just go out and try something. You know, I, I knew enough about, you know, the kettlebells. I knew enough about the foundry, thanks to my friend. Um, I had a background in engineering and material science. So I thought, you know, I'll give it a go. And, and I'll see how it goes. And so far, it's been a crazy ride. Um, stressful, long hours, you know, working my regular nine to five. I got a young dog at home, a six-month-old puppy we just got. Uh, a girlfriend works full-time, also in school. So just like everyone, we're busy. But, you know, it's 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 really fun, honestly, to create something, to have something that you envision from nothing and then bring it to someone like yourself, Paul. And you say, you know, I like this. This is awesome. You know, I would love to work out with this. Uh, it's, it's a really nice feeling. You know, it's just, just like anything you do in life. When you look back and see what you created, if it's a family, if it's a legacy, if it's, you know, just making a difference in people's lives every day, that's really important. I want to leave something behind when I'm gone. And, you know, kettlebells are in demand right now. Yeah. I, I don't think... It's something like, you know, maybe cigarettes where I'd feel really ashamed of having a part in creating. <laughs> yeah. You know, I would never feel bad about selling a kettlebell to someone, you know, unless they're planning to do some weird stuff with it. You know, yeah. it's, it, hopefully they're buying it because they're interested in improving their health. Yeah. They're buying a great tool. Our kettlebells are, you know, lifetime structural warranty. This should be the last kettlebell you ever have to buy. This should be the kettlebell that your kids and grandkids are swinging around in the basement one day. Like, you know, what's, what's this, Dad? What's this, Mom? Like, oh, yeah. well, you know, we used to, you know, we used to do CrossFit or we used to, you know, swing these bells around yeah. during COVID or, you know. Yeah. This, this is our home gym back in the day. Yeah. Oh, that's pretty cool. That's, that's all you need. So how did you get into, because uh, you work for the military, so how did you go from chemical engineering to, to working in the military? Okay, yeah, so I actually got my degree at the Royal Military College in Kingston. So when I originally joined the military, I was a construction engineering officer in training. I joined when I was 18 years old. My grandfather had been in the military. My great-grandfather had been in the military. So it kind of ran deep in my family. Mm -hmm. Um, So I was required to take an engineering degree in order to be qualified to be a construction engineer. So I started taking chemical engineering. Uh, two years into my education, I realized, you know, I don't really think that this is what I'm interested in. I really like aviation, so I'm going to try to become a pilot. So I tried to become a pilot. I went through, you know, years of testing, poking and prodding, and mm-hmm. hours of standardized tests. And then they came back and said, you know what? You're not really cut out to be a pilot, we don't think. We don't think you fit that mold. We think you'd be better as a navigator or an AXO, they call us now, air combat systems officers. So what does a navigator do? What does a navigator do? So our job is to back up and assist the pilots and ensure the safe operation of the aircraft at all times. So having an extra set of ears, an extra set of eyes in the flight deck can be really helpful when you're embarking on complex and challenging missions, um, such as you know flying low altitude over 
not very well charted airspace or in the mountains trying to perform a rescue or over the Hudson's Bay, things like that. Um, you know, airline pilots, they usually fly pretty, you know, uh, well-traveled routes into airports with good services, good runways, you know, all this type of stuff. We recently did some missions into Shamatawa, which is a First Nations um, reservation uh, up in the north, and we were bringing in supplies and personnel to help with their COVID outbreak. Mm-hmm. And, you know, when we first flew into that airstrip, I remember being at the, the hangar and being part of the team that was planning the mission, and we had no idea what this airstrip was about. We had no idea if it was plowed, you know, how long was it really, you know, was it, was it 4,000 feet, but then they only plowed 3,000 feet? How wide is it? Is there snow banks? All these things that, you know, at a, at a big airport, you just call up and say, and they go, okay, we just tested the surface 10 minutes ago, and it's, this is the condition. Yeah. So, you know, on harrowing trips like this, it, it helps to have a navigator on board, I think, to help navigate, you know making split minute, uh, split second decisions, planning the mission on, you know, uh, on a whim. Like one day we were in at the hangar at 4 a.m. trying to plan a mission to Shamatawa and we were supposed to go to Shamatawa and then take off and go to another community and then come back to Winnipeg. But it was very difficult to plan because based on the runaways being so short and our plane's characteristics, we had to make sure that the weight of goods that we were bringing in and the amount of fuel we had was perfect or else when we got to one airstrip, we wouldn't have been light enough to take off and get to the next one Mm -hmm. but they still want us to bring you know 20,000 pounds of equipment to this other place so we're punching the numbers on our fuel and trying to figure out how we can fly with the wind or whatever to save on fuel and get us there and complete the mission on time and that's kind of what the navigator's role has turned into before it used to be classic you know celestial navigation um, which we don't do now but we use other tools like GPS and inertial navigation which is a system that uses um, um laser gyros and acceleration to kind of guess or estimate your position on the world surface. Okay. It's pretty accurate. It does kind of do something that's called drifting. So it drifts a bit. So if you fly for a certain amount of hours without um, updating it to your GPS coordinates, you might be a couple, you know, three, four miles off, but it's, it's kind of good enough. If you're up in the Arctic, yeah. there's no radios, your GPS isn't working. Okay. Fly somewhere you know without just using your compass it gives you a little bit more of a of a picture of where you are so yeah and you guys aren't flying in a little single propeller plane right like there's not you know three of you in this plane it's it's a full-size like herc right yeah so it's a it's a hercules it's a h model so if there's any aircraft enthusiasts out there uh, you'll probably be aware that's a quite an old model I believe it came into service in the 80s maybe so it's it's old our aircraft have 10,000 plus hours i don't think there's many people out there in the world if not any who are flying this model of aircraft with this many hours on it so you know our technicians really do a lot they keep these planes running you know they come back with issues all the time they work 24 7 on the weekends to make sure the mission's ready to go so huge shout out to the technicians at 435 squadron because really they're they're the ones who get their planes off the ground they're the ones who make the missions happen wow that's uh, and you have people like jumping out the back of them. Uh, you were talking about some, if somebody uh, like a snowmobiler or whatever ends up getting caught up north or something like that, mm-hmm. like just people diving out of the back of them, and uh, you're helping with stuff like that. And so you you've got a lot going on up there. Yeah. So those guys are the search and rescue technicians. Um, amazing group of people. They really put their life on the line for the safety of Canadians. Their motto is, so others may live. And really, they take that to heart. So we've, we've lost quite a number of them throughout the years 
jumping into the frigid Hudson Bay trying to rescue, you know, overturned boaters. You know, they're jumping into minus whatever, 10, 15 degree water in their wetsuits and trying to swim over these people and get them into the rafts and make sure they don't get hypothermic. Yeah. And then it ends up that they're the ones who go hypothermic. So, you know, these guys really put their lives in the line every day. They're para- trained paramedics. They, they parachute out the back of the aircraft. They're trained in, you know, underwater diving, search underwater. They can do mountaineering. They go every year to do recertifications in the Rockies. So doing mountaintop rescues, all that kind of stuff. So, oh, yeah. That's pretty cool. Are you, and what are your shifts like for this? So m- depending on what your role is. So right now I'm working in the operations center. So I work one week on call shifts. So for one week, I'm kind of the duty operations officer. So anything to do with daily operations at the squadron, all coming through me, get calls, you know, two in the morning about aircrafts being broken or missions getting delayed or calls coming in from the Joint Rescue Coordination Center of a rescue that has to go. So, you know, a no-duff rescue at 2 a.m., trying to get all the crew out of their beds into the hangar, making sure everyone's there, the, the technician's there to launch the plane. So all that stuff, as well as just, you know, daily contact for the squadron. So if anything happens, I'm the first person they call. Okay. Um, if you're in a flying position which I'm not currently in at the time, you would be working what's called uh, day shifts and night shifts. So we call them uh, SAR standby, which is during the day. So you're on a 30-minute posture. So you basically come into the hangar at 6.30 in the morning and you're there till 4.30 in the afternoon. The plane's all loaded, all your gear's on it. It's parked on the tarmac. It's ready to go. So if we get a call at 8.30, that plane should be in the air at 9. That's that's our goal. Wow. Uh, in the evenings from 4.30 until uh, 6.30 the next morning or 8.30 the next morning, and on the weekends or some statutory holidays, we're on what's called uh, response posture two hours. Okay. And we call these guys usually the slash crew. I'm not sure where that came from, but if you're on slash, it basically means, you know, you're staying at home for the day. You're not coming into the office. You're taking a nap. You're trying to take it easy because anytime, you know, you can get the call at five o'clock, six o'clock, you know, three in the morning saying, okay, time to go. You're going on an 18 hour mission. You know, you're going up to the North. You, you might not end up back in your bed that night. You might have to stop for fuel somewhere and the weather might be too bad. You might have to bunk out on some cots and some old hangar up in the North. And that, that's happened before. And we carry sleeping bags on the planes for that reason. Yeah. Um, so you just have like pretty much a, a go bag ready and you know, everything else, like you don't have to bring your own food or anything like that. That's all on the plane and everything. Yeah, so like part of my job uh, in the ops in the ops center is making sure that there is food. So I'm, I'm, sometimes I'm a glorified, you know, skip the dishes, a travel planner, whatever. You know, yeah. they need hotels booked, they need uh, you know rental cars. Um, so yeah, the food's already all on the plane, yeah. ready to go uh, at all times when they're on thirty minute posture. Um, their equipment's already all on the plane, so all they have to do is literally run to the plane. Um, usually they do their planning like on the ground in like five minutes and then do the rest in the air, which is where the navigator really helps out. He can do a lot of stuff while the pilots are busy getting the plane ready for takeoff. Cool. And, uh, for those guys who are on two hour posture, yeah, they basically have a go bag. So they have something called their B25 kit, which they use in Winnipeg a lot. So whenever uh, temperature drops below a certain, uh, certain level, they have to bring all this winter stuff. So we're talking like mucklocks and big mitts and parkas and all this stuff. So that's kept in a locker downstairs. Mm-hmm. So they just, they'll grab like, you know, one of the, the quads and they have a trailer and they'll throw it all in the back and then they'll rip it out onto the apron and out into the planes and then um, most people have kind of you know like their overnight bag they kind of keep with them and update as they go you know everyone's got their favorite snacks and you know they're, they're things from home they can't live without like a change of underwear their toothbrush you know all <laughs> that bad of idea stuff, you know yeah so that, that's pretty much how it goes 
Awesome. Well, so when you're when you've got downtime, you're you're making kettlebells then. Yeah, exactly. Uh, all my downtime, my evenings, you know, yeah. <laughs> all those times. It, it is nice that, um, you know, Ancast Industries, the foundry where my friend Graham works and his father's the the president or CEO and they own the company. Yeah. Um, you know, he, he's, he's taken so much stress off my shoulders because I, I know I have like an inside man, you know, on the inside watching yeah. out for me and he's updating me and I can kind of tell him, you know, this is how many kettlebells we're going to make and I bring him the stuff and then he kind of handles it from there as part of the foundry's role in this stuff. Yeah. So that lets me focus on the design, the marketing, you know, building the brand, uh, coming out and meeting people like you and, and like even from our conversation today, Paul, like I already got some, some ideas for the kettlebells, right? Like we talked about like maybe uh, design the handle a little bit differently to reduce the size so that it does fit for more people's hands. Um, so yeah, that, 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 that makes it really easy for me to, to balance both, but it definitely is hard, especially with the puppy. I, <laughs> I can't imagine what it must be like to have kids because the puppy is just <laughs> running around everywhere. That's good training having a puppy for sure. Yeah. Um, so where can people find you if they're, if they're looking for some Canadian made kettlebells, where can they find you Trevor? Perfect. Yeah. So we're at www.canadiankettlebells.ca. And that's with an S. We're also on Instagram, the Canadian Kettlebell Company. Um, is, that, yeah. is that changing? Uh, yeah. So <laughs> it's, funny you, it's funny you asked that, Paul. Uh, so we've actually been running into some, some issues with our you know, name request incorporating in Canada and Manitoba. You know, it's, it's, I'm new at this. It's, I'm going to make mistakes, yep. uh, own up to them and learn as I go. And one of the big mistakes I made was, you know, advertising a company name before I had fully ensured that I had registered under that name. So I was under the impression that if the name didn't already exist, you know, if it wasn't already taken, then I could take it, right? So I did my research. I looked on all the trademark databases, all the company databases and everything. And it, I thought, you know, there's no way this will not get accepted. But what I didn't consider was that my name was not descriptive enough. So this is something when it comes into business naming is you have to have a distinctive element and you have to have a descriptive element. So for mine, the Canadian Kettlebell Company isn't very distinctive because, you know, you, if anyone else could want to open a Canadian Kettlebell Company, right? And they're also a Canadian Kettlebell Company. Mm -hmm. So I need to add something to my name to make it more unique. So a lot of times people recommend you making up a word or using your last name like Stark Strength. Yeah. Right. So we're working on that right now. It's, it's not going to change a whole lot. We're still going to be the only Canadian made kettlebell available at the moment. Um, we're still making them in Winnipeg. Yeah. We're, you know, we're still going to have that Maple Leaf in, uh, in, in Boland. Uh, sorry, um, that Maple Leaf emblem on our kettlebells. So it's just a name really at the end of the day. Yeah. No, that's uh, maybe just put the word best in there. The best Canadian kettlebell company. <laughs> they might accept that. We'll see. I was thinking about the great Canadian kettlebell company. <laughs> that, that's kind of cool too. Yeah. So, so what, um, I guess one more question before we kind of wrap up here, but uh, as a, as a brand new entrepreneur, other than like, you know, making sure that the name is a hundred percent yours, uh, what would you recommend for someone that's wanting to start something, start a product that, you know, they just don't know what to do or wh where to get started? So my advice, take it with a grain of salt. You know, I'm a first-time entrepreneur. Yep. But I'll give you my, you know, two months of experience condensed into one piece of advice. Look for good mentors and good business coaches and learn from them because... Every business is different, and I don't think any business textbook is going to teach you what you have to know. 
Nope. <laughs> you know, and a lot of it is being scared and not knowing what you're going to do and just figuring it out because there's no, there's no recipe out there for manufacturing kettlebells. You know, research, research, research and ask people who know a thing or two because I would have saved myself tons of money, tons of time if I would have, you know, got the advice that maybe you should get your name first. Maybe you should figure that out first before you start focusing on the product. But I was just so excited to start creating kettlebells that I yeah. didn't really think about the name for a while. Yeah. No, there's no there's no set pattern to what you have to do and when exactly. And yeah, there's there's a lot of different areas that need to be worked on when you're starting a new business or a new product. And it's, uh, yeah, it, it definitely takes time. And uh, I remember a buddy of mine who had asked me, I guess he was three months into his entrepreneurial journey. And he's like, man, I've, I've been doing this for three months and I'm not making any money yet. And I'm like, really? Like, <laughs> don't this this might last a lot longer like you might not make money for quite a while and uh and it was uh it was a product as well and i i just thought you know what like not ever some people might think that it comes a lot quicker than than it really does and it does take time to build a product and get it out there and and show people you know why why they should be buying that product and I think uh, having something done and made local here that's, you know, going through four different Winnipeg businesses to, to produce this product is pretty awesome. So once again, what, um, where can people find you? Yeah, so canadiankettlebells.ca. Cool. Pre-orders are open right now. We have 10% off on all the bells. And uh, looking at late February, early March delivery. Fingers awesome. crossed. But uh, there's always delays, so. Yeah. That's awesome. Well, very happy to uh, to have you down and to to check out your kettlebells. Um, I'll definitely take some photos of them, throw them up, and uh, yeah, hopefully get a, a maybe a video of a workout doing uh, doing something with this kettlebell for a good amount of time and uh, post it and give you guys some feedback on it. But uh, yeah, really excited to have you down here, Trevor, and uh, hoping that this journey goes really well for you and that uh, you put uh, a lot of kettlebells into a lot of Winnipeggers' hands and people across Canada too. Amazing. Thanks again, Paul. I really appreciate it. This is my first podcast. So uh, did all thank right. you. That was, good. <laughs> no, that was awesome. So thank you very much for coming down. Okay. Uh, thanks everyone for listening to the Better Than Yesterday podcast. Hopefully you guys enjoyed it and uh, I will put some links in the show notes for this podcast. So if you want to check out the Canadian Kettlebell Company and maybe put an order in for some of your own sweet bells, that would be awesome. Hopefully this podcast made you a little bit better than yesterday and thanks for listening. Thank you for making the time to listen to the Better Than Yesterday podcast hosted by Stark Strength and Conditioning. If you liked our show, please head over to the iTunes store and give us a rating. If you have any questions or suggestions about topics you'd like to hear us cover or people you think should be on this show, please let us know so we can make it happen. Thanks again for listening, and we hope that this podcast makes you better than yesterday.